pictures, some themes that help us to understand the Bible, some things that thread through the scriptures. So when it came to the death of Christ, then the apostles had a framework to understand what the gospel was and what the death of Christ meant. And because of what they wrote, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we also can now understand. Yet even our understanding is incomplete. For the gospel remains and always will remain something of a mystery to us. It's too big for us. So this is what we've considered for the last few weeks. That sin is the breaking of God's perfect law. And the reality of our sinfulness has made us guilty in the sight of a just and holy God. That the appropriate consequences of our sin is punishment. But that Jesus bore our punishment... And on that basis, God reckons us as innocent. That's what the Bible means when it talks about justification. Sin also kills. The Bible lets us know that we were dead in sin. That to exist out of the context of God is exactly that. It's just existence. It's not life. But on the cross, God in the person of Jesus Christ experienced death, both physical and in that sense of rejection by God. The Bible says that he experienced that for us, and that when he was raised to life by the power of God, God included us in that resurrection. We've been made alive in Christ. Theologians call that regeneration. Sin also enslaves us. We're captive to it. But Jesus gave himself as a ransom for us. He has secured our release. We're no longer enslaved to sin. The Bible calls this redemption. But the gospel yet is more than that. Sin has made our hearts dirty. We are filthy, permanently stained by the reality of sin. And so the Bible speaks of our being washed in the blood of the Lamb. The blood being a reference to the death of Christ. We've been cleansed from our sin. And the word righteous has to do with cleanliness. Guilty to justified. Dead to alive, enslaved to freedom, filthy to clean. This is the gospel. But that's not all. The gospel is more than that. And so we're going to trace today the framework of the gospel in the parent-child or husband-wife relationship. So here we go. When Luke chapter 3 traces the genealogy of Jesus Christ, he does it backwards starts with Jesus was the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, and so on, until the genealogy ends with the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Having created Adam, having breathed his own life into Adam, Adam was, in a very real sense, God's son. There was a relationship, there was a nearness in which God was close and would walk in the Garden of Eden, if not physically and visibly, at least in a way that Adam and Eve could walk with him and talk with him. But at some point, Adam and Eve, like rebellious children, chose to step outside of the good authority of a father who loved them and wanted the best for them. And notice the immediate effect on their relationship with God. The next time they heard God in the garden, what did they do? They hid. Have you ever snuck in late, hoping your parents were in bed? 
Have you ever done anything after which you were afraid to face your parents? Parents, have you ever walked into your child's room only to have your child react quickly and try not to act guilty? Adam and Eve are hiding. They're hoping not to get caught. But pretty quickly, they have to confess. They have disobeyed the perfect father. They have irreparably damaged their relationship with him. They have become relationally estranged from God. There had opened before them a gulf. And all of their children and descendants from then on were born on that side of the gulf that separated them from God. And the judgment of God upon Adam and Eve was to have them banished from the garden. Now being estranged from God, having been rebellious, it's like God is saying, you can't live under my roof if you're going to be like that. And so the human race became utterly rebellious. And then God judged mankind with a great flood, which gives us an indication of just how gross sin had become. And after the flood, from one of the descendants of Noah, God chose one man through whom he would build a nation. And this nation would in turn be a people through whom God would put into motion his dream of restoring people to himself. And that nation was Israel. In the days of Abraham's grandson, Jacob, Jacob's family was relocated to Egypt in order to survive a famine. They remained in Egypt and multiplied for a series of generations, at one point becoming so numerous that Pharaoh considered them a threat and began to oppress them and enslave them brutally. And when at the appropriate time God would act to gain their freedom, he called Moses to be the agent of their deliverance. Moses was to go to Pharaoh and speak for God and demand the Israelites' release. And God warned Moses that Pharaoh would not listen. And when that happens, God said this to Moses, You shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, I will kill your firstborn son. God says, you mess with my family, you mess with me. So God then, in a series of plagues, held up the Egyptian gods to ridicule and led Israel out of Egypt in triumph. Centuries later, when the prophet Hosea spoke for God, God would reflect on this event and say, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Israel, however, proved to continue being a rebellious son. And their story is a pattern of God's faithfulness to them and their rebellion against him. Deuteronomy 32, God plays the role of both father and mother. And Moses says this of the rebellion of Israel. Ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness, a God without iniquity, just and upright is he. But they have dealt corruptly with him. They're no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and a wicked generation. And then the maternal imagery. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, the gods they had never known to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. 
The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be. For they're a perverse generation, children in whom there is no faithfulness. Jeremiah chapter 3. I thought, he says to his people, I thought you would call me my father and not turn away from following me. God is the father who loves and disciplines his children. His people are the rebellious and belligerent children, never submitting to either God's affection or his authority. Even as God continues to demonstrate his fatherly affection and authority, the children remain willfully distant, willfully unreconciled. And such is the human condition. Children estranged from their father by their own choosing. The Bible uses another image, and that quite poignantly, of marriage. That God is the spurned husband, Israel is the adulterous wife. And when God speaks in this context, you can hear his heart breaking. And the unfaithfulness of the wife of his people is absolute. In Jeremiah chapter 3, right after God has said, I thought you would call me father, he immediately says, Surely, as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. In the books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, there are extended passages that describe Israel's unfaithfulness to her spouse. And for obvious reasons, as we'll see, some of these passages never made it into our picture Bibles. Here are some examples. Jeremiah chapter 20, verses 20 to 24. No. Jeremiah 2, 20 to 24. Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain, of your, uh, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. How can you say, I am not unclean? I have not gone, at, gone after the bales. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there. A wild donkey used to the wilderness in her heat, sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need weary themselves. In her month, they will find her. Ezekiel 23. It describes Judah's worship of foreign gods in these personal terms. And here are some words from that chapter. Ezekiel 23, 5 to 7 and 18 to 21. God, speaking metaphorically, gives the names Ohola and Aholibah to his two people, Judah and Israel. Ohola, Jerusalem, played the whore. While she was mine, and she lusted after her lovers, the Assyrians, warriors clothed in purple, governors and commanders, all of them desirable young men, horsemen riding on horses. She bestowed her whoring upon them, the choicest men of Assyria, all of them, and she defiled herself with all the idols of everyone after whom she lusted. 
And then again, a few verses later, when she carried on her whoring so openly and flaunted her nakedness, I turned in disgust from her as I turned in disgust from her sister Israel. And yet she increased her whoring, remembering the days of her youth when she played the whore in the land of Egypt and lusted after her paramours there, whose members were like those of donkeys and whose issue was like that of horses. Thus you longed for the lewdness of your youth when the Egyptians handled your bosom and pressed your young breasts. To the point, verse 43, where she was worn out with her whoring. Ezekiel chapter 16 has more of the same. I'm sorry if you find this uncomfortable. 16 verses 15. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. And finally, you're probably saying thank you, finally, verse 31 through 34. You were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment. Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore. You gave payment while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different. Now, if all that sounds like too much information too lewd and graphic for the church. Think then of how God thinks that God's sin was full and complete and absolute, that their unfaithfulness was utter on every level. For them to have turned away from God so utterly, becoming essentially an idol-worshipping pagan nation, was an offense beyond expression. And we've seen this in recent weeks. The infinite guilt of sin, dead in sin, helplessly enslaved to sin, rendered foul and reeking with sin. And so if these descriptions of the unfaithful spouse sound unnecessarily extreme, it is just a reminder again of the very nature of our sin. Let's make no mistake that to elevate anything in our lives above God is to be unfaithful. And there was a time when that was our natural and unalterable position, unable to do anything but turn away continually from God. Our sin was no less flagrant than the sin of Judah, the sin of Israel. The orientation of humanity is to whore after other gods. That's what sin is. It's the stubborn estrangement of children from the father. It's the brazen promiscuity of a wife against her husband. In both of these, so severely willful that we're acting actually as enemies, hostile to God. But that is not the end of the story. Hosea chapter 1, verses 10 and 14 
Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. Estranged children who will once again be called children of God. A wife who prostitutes herself will once again be called my husband. Chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, God says, and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Verse 16 of chapter 2. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. The first chapter of the Gospel of John, which we had read for us earlier, introduces Jesus to us this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then later, in verse 14, as we approach Christmas, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this is what we read in between. Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but who all, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of flesh or of the will of man, but of God. That's Christmas as we enter this season. Ephesians 1 and verse 5 makes this great statement. In love, God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. A few summers ago, I preached through Ephesians and said this about this word adoption. Quote, Adoption is an amazing gift to give a child, but it's hard for us to think about the word adoption from a purely positive perspective. When I was a kid, the youngest in my family, my siblings sometimes teased me by joking that I was adopted, that I'd been found in a ditch and brought into the family by the roundabout route of adoption. I was not adopted, and I knew it, of course, so I never took their teasing as anything but a joke. But the humor of their teasing relied on the assumption that adoption falls short of full belonging. And it might seem to us as though adoption means that in bringing us to himself, God brought us only 90% of the way, that we are still one shade short of full sonship. But Paul writes these words to the citizens of a leading Roman city, and the Roman understanding of adoption was very different from ours. In the Roman setting, a man could adopt a son to be his heir. Most adoptions in our day are of orphans and infants, not so in Rome. A Roman would often adopt an adult. And when someone was adopted into a family, Roman law was such that the adopted one would have full status as a son. 
and the family was bound in matters of inheritance and all legal matters to treat the adopted one as an equal. But here's the thing that makes us sit up and take notice. An adopted son was to some degree better off than a natural son. Once adopted, an adopted heir could not be disowned. Adoption was irrevocable. A natural son could be disowned. A father could say to his natural son, your choices and your lifestyle are a grace to this family. From this point on, you are no longer my son. You have no part in this family and no share in the inheritance of our estate. With an adopted son, he could not do that. So the position of the adopted son in the family, entitled to share in the estate and the inheritance, was actually more secure than that of the natural son. Among the ancient legal documents from this era, there is a record of a father who disowned his son, only later on to forgive him and receive him back into the family. But later, when the father decided again to disown the son and cast him off, here's what's interesting. The son claimed that his father was not legally entitled to do this, Because after having been received back the first time, he now has the status of an adopted son. He wanted to be treated as an adopted son, or he wanted to be treated as an adopted son because it gave him a more secure place in the family than his status as a natural son. End quote. So when Paul says that we are adopted as God's children, what he's implying is not that we are less than full children of God, but in a sense, we are more than natural children. Not not only do we have full status as God's children, but it is an eternal and irrevocable, it is an unshakably secure status as children of God. And so John says again, 1 John 3, verse 1, how great is the love, love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called his children. In Revelation chapter 21, in verse 5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Look at the picture given to us at the end of history, near the end of the book of Revelation. It's a picture of a banquet, a wedding banquet. Revelation 19, verses 16 and following. Six and following, excuse me. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. On at least two occasions, the Gospels paint Jesus as groom. 
On two other occasions, Jesus tells parables that describe the kingdom of God in wedding imagery. How does this happen? By what means does God make rebel children, his sons, and spiritual adulterers a spotless bride? Colossians chapter 1. For in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh, by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And so it has been all these weeks. When we speak of the gospel, we always come back to a place, the cross, to an event, the crucifixion, and to a person, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. And the New Testament repeatedly ties the love of God in Christ, which is a relational word, love, to the cross of Christ. Romans 5, verse 8, God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Galatians 2.20, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians 5, verse 2, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. In 525, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is, that he laid down his life for us. 1 John 4.10, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation or a sacrifice for our sins. God is the father who could not stop loving. He is the husband who could not stop longing. And he gave a son in order that he might restore us to himself. And the cross is how he did it. You married women, raise your hand if you have the perfect husband. Okay, Kara's not here, so I'll raise my hand on her behalf. (laughs) What is God like as a husband? What does it mean for us to be reconciled as his beloved? Ephesians 5 speaks of the relationship between Christ and his church as the model for the husband and wife relationship. And I've preached this text before, focusing on the husband-wife half of the equation. Today I want to draw our attention to what it says about Christ and his church. Ephesians 5, 22 to 24. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husband in everything. Christ is the head of the church, and the church submits to Christ in everything. Christ is in authority over the church. He leads the church. He takes responsibility for the church. The church lives under his roof and not the other way around. In what shapes Christ's headship and leadership and authority of the church? Ephesians 5.25, I just read it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for us. 
We read that just a few minutes ago. All of Christ's leadership, whenever Christ exercises his authority, he does it out of so profound a love that he would and did lay down his life for her. He would literally do anything if it was good for the church. And the church's response is very simple. We submit to Christ in everything. Everything. He says, love one another, we do. He says, forgive one another, we do. He says, make disciples, we do. He says, follow him, whatever the cost, we do. We order our lives absolutely under the authority of Christ, our head. But we do it in the realization that in every way that he leads us, he does so for our good. Wives, what would it be like for you to order your lives under the leadership of a husband whose every action and every decision was motivated solely by his desire for your good? Such is Jesus. And our submission to him in all things is a submission that, in such awe at his love, that we can't help but also love and respond to him accordingly. Do you believe that in everything that is going on in your life, God has acted, is acting, and will always act for your good? That whatever he has done or allowed in whatever circumstance you find yourself in, that it comes from a God who deeply loves you, and that in all things God is working for your good. What is going on in your life right now? Do you trust him? Will you willingly submit yourself to him? God as a husband. What is God like as a father? Some people have had terrible fathers and therefore refuse to think of God as a father. But the problem is not that God is like their father, but that their father was not like God. The reason some of you have been hurt by your fathers is because they weren't a father like God is a father. God is the real. God is the perfect father. So what is a father to be like? What do fathers do? They provide. They love unconditionally. They discipline, but always in love, always concerned for the character of the children, never flying off the handle, never excessive discipline. Fathers delight in their children and love them no matter what. They forgive, they notice their children and spend time within them. Children feel safe with their father. God does all of these things. I've seen and heard parents say to their children, when their children would not come when it was time to leave, parents would say, okay, we're leaving now, bye, in the hopes that their child would panic and then come running, which they often do. But what that parent has done, unintentionally, I think, but the parent has communicated to the child that unless the child obeys, the parent will leave. And some people's lives are shaped by the fact that their father might have, or in some cases did, walk out. God never threatens with abandonment. Quite the opposite. He guarantees his presence with all of his children all of the time. And so the church and we ourselves, we are secure with the constant presence of the God who really does delight in us. 
who always will provide what is needed, who disciplines but never in anger, who forgives and who forgets. And Hebrews 12 reminds us that unless there is some form of hardship in our lives, if there is hardship in our lives, it's evidence that we are children of God. We often think hardship is evidence of God's absence, but 